Do you say happy Memorial Day before tomorrow? I don't know. Have a happy Memorial Day. Uh, Greg's right. Spring's here. Aslan's on the move. It's getting warmer. Seasons are changing. I hope that's not too confusing or complicated for you and your family right now. I have you in my heart. People who are graduating, people who are throwing open houses, people who are trying to figure out what to do next. So turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. It's near the end of uh, the Bible. One of the last letters to have been written in the Bible. And we're just going to dig into maybe one of the more famous chapters in the Bible. I mean, raise your hand if you've ever heard of this chapter before. Okay, raise your hand if you've ever had a Hallmark card before. <laughs> uh, God is love. Uh, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Um, as he is, so are we in this world. I mean, this, is this, this chapter is just so exciting for me to, to dig into with you guys. And so I'm going to start off with a question and I'm not going to uh, do a big reading or anything since uh, you already heard most of the chapter before we did worship. But let me start off with this question that's helped me through life. If you've known me for any period of time, you know that this question is one that I keep coming back to because I believe that the seasons of life have a purpose. I believe that there is ways to figure out how, why we're having so many identity crises. crises, crises uh, I believe that all of sacred writ, all of the scriptures were designed around this question. Who is God? A lot of people try and answer that question or at least are seeking that. A lot of times in the seasons of life afterwards, after we go through something really difficult, we just realize, well, God just wanted to show me himself as that in that season. And now I get it. And then we move forward. If we would just have that question in our heart, maybe we wouldn't, maybe it would answer some of the elongated seasons of turmoil that we go through. If you believe, like I do, that we were made in his image and in his likeness, who am I is the second question. Who is God is the first question. And as I see who he is, I start to realize in whose likeness I have been made. And John, I think, in this chapter especially, is starting to press into some of the confusion revolving around who God is. Who does he say God is? God is love. Now you say, Dan, Mike, in chapter 1, he said God is light. And we read Jesus say God is holy. And, and God is this and God is that. But there's something about the love of God that just transcends these things, isn't that? There's something about the love of God that just sort of feeds into all of these things. And I would argue that even our Christian walk and character is all to do with the love of God. What's Jesus say? What's John say in chapter 3? If you love me, you can obey me. Your life, your righteousness will be preceded by you loving, by you loving. And in this chapter, we have this verse. We love him because he first loved us. So God, I just want to ask that you come and give us light. 
That you prepare our hearts to be able to receive something that you have died, that you are di- that you died to give to us physically, literally. You died to give us this. Help us to be able to be open to receiving the love that you have for us. Soften our hearts. We're here waiting for you to speak to us. Even those of us who have anxieties of life right now uh, about graduation parties and and colleges and and summer stuff and jobs. We're bringing a lot of baggage to the room this morning, God, and we lay it at your feet and say, speak to me your words of life. And you've been doing that for thousands of years, and so I'm just praying for you to do something that you do. You, O Lord, are a shield around us. You're our glory and the lifter of our heads. Thank you. Amen. So this chapter starts to lead us into this question about who is God. And this morning, I just simply want to exhort and encourage you and celebrate this chapter, claiming that God is love. And as John starts to build this case about God being love, I want you to know that he's speaking to, he's writing to people who need to hear of that precious, healing, love of God. A source of confidence before God. This perfected love that we can have. John is trying to communicate that to people that need it. Do you? Do you know God's love? Do you know about the freeing love of God that says, I welcome all? You can be free and fully known, naked and unashamed before him and fully loved. Do you know this love? Free to be vulnerable. But before we get into it, I want to say a word about John. Who's John? Who's this guy? Let's talk about John for a minute. John's writing this thing called an epistle, which is really just a different word for a fancy letter to people, or an important letter, okay? He's writing a letter. This is one of the last letters that we have chronologically speaking, in the Bible, okay, one of the older ones. John is the last person to write into the scriptures. So we have a letter from a guy to people. So who is John? I read this story about John from this guy named Jerome in a commentary on Galatians, and I love it. The story basically says that John would not stop talking about the love of God. It says that he as an old man has seen so much and was so weathered and so decrepit and senile that they had to bring him hand in hand into the church service and that he wouldn't just stop mumbling. He wouldn't stop saying, love one another. This is the commandment of God. Love one another. Love one another. John would not stop talking about the love of God. You may have already started to ask this question. How do we know that this letter even was written by John? He didn't sign it. It's not on the front. All the other letters in the New Testament pretty much say things like, this is Paul writing to Timothy, or I'm writing to Corinth, or this is uh, Luke writing to Theophilus, my pal, or Jude, James. All these people sign letters. Why didn't John? 
We know it's John's letter because it's very idiosyncratic, which is just a, a fancy word for saying it's very obvious because of his habits. Uh, it would be like uh, me saying, I'm going to write a letter to Chelsea, my wife, and I'm going to give it to Brad. He's going to give it to Will, who will give it to Aaron, who will give it to Emma, who will give it to Prison Mike, who will knock on our door and give it to Chelsea. And then she gets this letter from Prison Mike, and the top it says, Dear Salto. Which is an infamous nickname between me and Chelsea. Don't call her that. She hates it. It's, got, it's this Brazilian guy that we met in Israel. Uh, dear Salto, I really miss you. And I just want to tell you, you got to want it. You just got to want it. And really, that's what's up, Chelsea. And don't forget, the bears are who I thought they were. If she reads this letter and the more of these things that are written in the letter, she's like, this is a prison, Mike. <laughs> I know exactly who wrote this letter. This is John. John would not stop talking about the love of God. Sometimes I wonder, when did that start? When did John stop signing things? I wonder, at what point in life did he, did he stop signing his name on stuff? Could it have been in the 60s, of the, first, the, the late 60s of the first century when, when Nero, after the great fire, blamed it on Christians and made them the enemy of the state? Could it have been then? Was it too dangerous to sign the letter? He's like, come on, Paul, don't write every single name of everyone in the church. They're going to find us. Could it have been when, he, when Nero was, was crucifying Christians and reinventing the street lamp by lighting them on fire to light the streets up at night? Could it have been the, the younger brother, Domitian, the younger brother, the guy who destroyed Jerusalem, who, who made it a, a mandatory to, to call him Lord and God? That's a problem for Christians. Domitian would have Christians brought before him. And he would test them, and if they refused to accept Jesus, he would kill them. But if they accepted Jesus in front of him, he would kill them. (laughs) It was because life for him just got so dangerous that he stopped signing things. Even if it was, he still had this message of the love of God burning in his heart enough to risk it. At least to even continue to write the letter. He didn't stop writing. He didn't stop. The, it didn't stop the message. I don't know what I would have done. Coming to be an older man in life, and I mean, I mean, it was hard to see Stephen get stoned, but we didn't really know him that much. But what about James when he got his head cut off? When's enough enough? What What about when Peter was crucified upside down? What about all my friends who have been killed for this very message? Is it worth it? There's something inside of John that is worth risking this, even after he's had to say goodbye to all of his friends for this very message. There's something burning inside of his heart that says, I'm still going to teach people about the love of God. It's worth it. And I think if John were in here this morning, he'd say, you know what? I don't need to sign things anymore. You want a signature? The disciple whom Jesus loved. 
the beloved apostle. That's my name. I have a truer name and a truer identity that goes beyond just my given name. I have something that I'm living for, something that I'll die for. It's the love of God. He wouldn't stop talking about it. You might remember this verse in Luke 21, 34 that says, in the, in, in the end, the hearts of many men will grow cold because of the anxieties of life and because of drunkenness. John experienced the anxieties of life. John had so many trials. He had so much anxiety. He was, he was exiled off into this island in the ocean, this arid, rocky island named Patmos. He was, tradition has it, he was thrown into a vat of boiling oil, but it didn't kill him, and so they brought him out. Even after this anxiety, even after these trials, John is answering a question that a lot of us would be asking at this time. Who is God? Where is God? This is God's love. And his love can be inside of you if you would just receive it. And then in the midst of the Domitians, in the midst of all of the tribulation and troubles and peril and anxieties and danger, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. What will separate us from the love of Christ? This is John. And it's a man who, who knows serious brokenness and he knows the culture around him. He's not playing like it's all just fun and games. He's writing to a people that have also experienced loss and suffering and brokenness who also have to draw like little fish on their door to even get around, who also have to sneak around and who have to receive letters that don't have their names on it. He's writing to people who live in a world of brokenness. People probably not all that different from you and me. This message in this letter is for us. So we start to see John chapter 4 move into uh, these first few verses of John. We start to see John taking issue against a system of the world that's against God system of the world that's been against God, even in chapter 3 when he brought up Cain and Abel. Let me read this to you. Dear friends, don't believe every spirit, chapter 4, verse 1, but test the spirits and see whether they're from God. Because there's many false prophets who have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus is Christ has come into, and has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus isn't from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. John is trying to right a wrong here. He's trying to set the record straight for, for some confusion that's going on inside of the church. And he's saying Christians are people who are around a Christ. If you're not around the Christ, maybe you're anti the Christ. Are we, is, is your life centered around the Christ? Is the aim and the direction of your life 
centered on the Christ or is it anti-Christ? This is the difference between lost children of the world and found children, uh, the children of God. It's, the te- it's not the test of was there a historical Jesus it's not a test of was Jesus a prophet or a rabbi or a tecton. Who was he? Well, see the Messiah. See the Christ. That cuts through the confusion. And if you think there isn't confusion today, let me just name one really confusing thing. My heart. There's false preachers. There's false prophets. My heart is one of them. It tells me that things are all good when things are definitely not good. It tells me that things are not good when things are definitely good. It's adding to the confusion that we hear in our culture and all around us, the things that we should live for. Things that will make us happy and satisfied, like getting into the school that you chose, your first choice. Like your kids getting into the school that you want them to get into. Or we hear things like, you deserve the TV and the chair and the desk. You deserve the couch. And if you don't have the toy or the computer, it's, it's killing you. It will satisfy you. It will give you what you desire. These feelings are confusing because I have a Christ, and maybe even some, in the, some of them are pointing towards Antichrist. Maybe some of these things are drawing us away from the Messiah. In, chap, in John, he's continuing to talk about Jesus coming in the flesh, and we know that the early church was struggling with, with like a Gnostic belief, you know, and, and really what that says to me is, is that times are tough. And sometimes when times are tough, we turn our religion into this escape or we want to just get out of here. I mean, life is just too difficult. This thing is too, too tricky. And so the Gnostic kind of way of life is to shun this reality and somehow get into this spiritual trance. But God has a plan for you in this world, in this world where you are. God's powerful love has a plan for you to not just escape in some astral projection somewhere in the clouds, but he says, I want to be for you everything right now, right where you are. If you will just accept me, I have a plan for you to be a witness that I am alive and that I love. That's what Christians are. Witnesses of liberty. It's a promise for you. So John chapter 2, verse 22, helps us to clear up some of this confusion. Who's the liar? It's whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is anti-Christ, denying the Father and the Son. I know that we have books and literature and, and, and things that talk about this anti-Christ, you know, this, this guy maybe, Revelation 13, beast of a man or whatever, uh, this antichrist. But this is a lot more simple than that. This is just what it sounds like. We can have the aim and the direction of our life be anti the Christ. Verse 
But before I get ahead of myself here, I want to just answer the question that maybe you guys are asking. Dan Mike, what is a Christ? (laughs) Christ is a Greek word translated from a Hebrew word, which is Messiah. You've probably heard of both of those. Messiah, let me just clear it up, in English is anointed. I know that that doesn't really, (laughs) it probably doesn't clear anything up. We aren't really in a tradition that uh, does the anointing thing. I mean, if you want some oil, Aaron's got some oils. Uh, (laughs) There are traditions that talk about anointing, like a good song, like a good worship song was anointed, or like a dynamic message is anointed. What are we talking about? Talking about... Uh, think, think Psalm 133. How good and perfect is it for brothers to dwell together in unity. It's like the oil that was poured over the head of the high priest. And it dripped down his beard and on his collar. This is when he was anointed. Anointing used to mean something. I don't have it figured out. <laughs> I don't have the anointing thing all figured out. All I know is there was a day in my life where my pastor sat me down in the old office conference room and put his hands on my head and begged God for an anointing to preach. He begged for a gift to preach and he prayed for anointing. And I can't tell you with words what I felt in that moment. And I can't tell you how things have changed ever since that day in my life when he prayed for that. The kings of old were Messiah. They were anointed. David, Saul, And all anointing really stands for is an identity for a purpose. Identity and purpose comes with anointing. So if David was anointed as a young man, his his identity was the, the anointed one to be the king. The king that has a purpose to lead. This is what a Messiah is. But to tell you the story would take too long. I could just direct you back to Lent and some of those verses that we we studied this spring. But the story goes like this. As more and more people were anointed in the the family of Israel, as more and more people were, were given identity and leadership, the more people realized that this isn't the end game. We need to have... An, an, an anointed one of the anointed ones. We need a king of kings. We need somebody greater and better than David. Greater and better than all of these kings. And in the ancient Near East, for the time of Jesus, this was just the perfect time. I mean, the hearts of men were cold. There was darkness in their religion. There was no lineage of righteousness that had been carried through more than just a few years or so. And then Matthew 1 talks about 14 generations from David to exile, 14 generations from exile to Joseph, and then Matthew 1, 18, and then was born the Messiah. The capital M, Messiah. The anointed one of anointed ones. 
the spirit of the Antichrist or anyone who is Antichrist is against Jesus being that person. So what's the identity and the purpose of Jesus as Messiah? I'm glad you asked. King and answer. The identity and the purpose of Jesus the Messiah is to be the king and the answer. We are to receive Jesus as the king and the answer. I mean, when you read John, the the gospel, in the first chapter, you get to, to, to verse 12, and it says, to all who believed, to all who received him, Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God, who believed and received him as what? The Messiah, the king, and the answer to your life. He's the king and he wants to rule in your heart and he wants to be the answer to all of your needs, to all of the thirsts and the desires of your heart. Was he king? Was it the type of king that people were looking for? He said, I want to win your heart with my love. That's my first priority. I want to be the king and the answer to your heart and I'm going to do it through love. I love that quote from Napoleon Bonaparte. I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there's no possible term of comparison. Alexander the Great, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. But Jesus, the Messiah, founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. That's true. If he were to calm down Scribner Street tonight, which one of us would not lay down in front of him that he might just be a little bit taller than the rest? What would you not do for the king? The king who says, receive me as king and receive me as the one king who's saying, I love you. Listen to people who want to have geography. Say, my kingdom is here. My kingdom is there. My kingdom, first and foremost, is inside of you. I want to be the king of your heart. Jesus is the Messiah, and he is the answer, and he is the compass. And that is the, that is the test that we use through all the confusing times in life where people and things are trying to preach to us, that we, saying they will be our king, and they can be our answer, and they can satisfy this and that can satisfy our heart. Jesus says, no, that's going to leave, lead you to chaos and leave your heart broken. But I want to come and heal you with my love. Who is God? This is our God. The God of love who sends his Messiah to be king and answer for all of your heart's desires. So then, let's move into the second part of this chapter, verses 7 to 21. We have 14 verses to go. <laughs> and this is the part where that, the love of God starts to work itself out into all of our relationships. The relationship between God and you and the relationship between you and everyone else. It's difficult. But notice how in verse 7 and in verse 21 and in the middle, it says to love one another. So simply put, 
Let your relationships begin and end and everything in between with the love of God. With love for one another. Let your relationships begin and end with love. I want to put it simply like that because relationships are really tricky. (laughs) There's a lot of different things that go into relationships. But let your relationships begin and end and everything in between with an effort to love. Because believe it or not, we can be antichrist in in our relationships. We can be antichrist in the way we love and in the way we don't love. What's the antichrist relationship look like? It looks like a relationship that is self-centered. It is selfish. It is, well, my mom used to yell at me when I was a kid and I had a problem with somebody. She'd be like, it's all about you, Dan. After a few years, I figured out that, that, she, was not, that she was being sarcastic. <laughs> I'm like, I know, Mom. <laughs> it's all about you. This is a self-centered relationship. This is a relationship that is, that is not seeking to love, but is seeking to get love. A selfish relationship is constantly looking to each other to fulfill all of our needs and satisfy all of our desires. And it's just take, take, take. And once we start doing that, we really quickly start to see that our relationships cannot do that and start to let us down in small, petty ways and start to become full of anger and enmity and strife. Sheep don't eat sheep. Wolves eat sheep. And we're in a flock. And if we're eating each other, we're having antichrist tendencies in our relationships because we're not allowing the Messiah to fulfill all of our needs. We're, we're putting that on people that never, never wanted that to be placed on them. We have one figure in the universe who says, I will satisfy all of your needs. Place them on me. Please do it. And we try and just put it on each other. You will be let down. This is the part where we start to accept the love of God over our friends and family. We start to accept the love of God over people that are around us. And we start to say, you have a Messiah. I don't have to crucify you for your shortcomings. Verse 9 Uh, Verse 10 says that he was the propitiation or he was the atoning sacrifice for our sins. What that means is we deserved some wrath. And then all of a sudden someone swooped in and took all of the wrath. That's propitiation. So we can't look at each other and say, I have wrath for you, I have punishment for you, I have hatred for you, because that's anti the Messiah who said, I took it, I took the wrath, all that's left over is love. There was another writer in the New Testament named Paul who wrote to, to, to different churches. And in one of his letters called 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we have similar language. In chapter 5, he says, the love of God constrains us. Because we recognize that one man died for everybody. Therefore, all have died. 
So we have this ministry now to, of reconciliation. We're ambassadors of that message. And we regard no man because of the flesh anymore. We don't look at each other and see fleshly failures anymore. All we see is potential atoned person or atoned person. <laughs> because he who knew no sin became sin so that we might be regarded as righteous, as the righteousness of God. Who, are, who do you see when you look around the room? People that deserve your wrath or people who have a Messiah? Second Corinthians 5 again says that any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, behold, the new has come. That's how we are to regard each other. Forgiven, accepted. First John chapter 4 verse 17 puts all that like this. As he is, so are we in this world. That's a life-changing verse for me. Repeat after me. As he is, so are we in this world. Is he forgiven? Is he accepted? Is he loved? As he is, so are we in this world. He, he is perfectly accepted by God. As he is, so are we in this world. Your brother, your sister has a Messiah. Don't let your heart grow cold and be, be dim towards, towards them. Because the world is watching how we do relationships. And the world is hungry and, and, and thirsty for someone to say, we have a Messiah, we have a king, we have an answer. We have a different way of doing relationships. We have a love that goes past the petty things of this world. We have a satisfaction that leads us to actually just experiencing joy in our relationships. It's the same way for me and my wife. I got in trouble at premarital counseling for bringing this idea up. I, my desire is to seek all of my satisfaction in the early hours of the morning, at noonday and at night from my Savior and Messiah. All of my greatest needs and all of the things that I eagerly desire, I put onto him and lay them at his feet. And he says, I will nurture you. I will give you healing. I will speak to you. And then I got a wife. And anything that she does good for me is extra credit. And I love it. But I don't have wrath for her because she has a Messiah who's with me. We have a word, amen. <laughs> it's a Hebrew word. But then verses like, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, pray for those who persecute you. Let them hit you. Love your enemy. Start to make more sense in the light of who Jesus is. That's an attractive thing to the world. It will pester people. I used to work at Starbucks and it pestered coworkers around me when I wasn't decafing other employees or other people who were coming through that were rude. <laughs> I didn't really, I didn't. I didn't, because I have no wrath for them. I don't need them to fulfill some desire in me to be the best barista in the world. I'm just trying to get a cup of coffee out here. And they're like, what is going on with this guy? How do you have this, this joy? It's messing with us. 
Because I have a Messiah. We can be Antichrist baristas. <laughs> or we can be Christians. Is your love selfish? Are you holding grudges? Are you punishing people? Are you losing hope for the lost? Are you condemning nations and races and ethnic groups and religions? Because they have a Messiah too. And we are a people who are to go out in the world and be witnesses to this love and to say, I'm not going to settle. I'm not going to settle for any other thing than the love of God coming into me and then going out to you. Verse 12 says that no one has seen God, but if we love each other, he lives in us. Nobody's ever seen God, but if we loved each other, they, they kind of can see God. It pastors me in Galatians when Paul tells them, you've, you've, you know that Christ was crucified, when they probably weren't at the crucifixion. But then you start to read how Paul regards himself, and he says things like, he was crucified right before your very eyes. Really, Paul? Yes, because it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. I have been crucified to the world, and the world to me. I no longer live. When we love each other, the invisible God is seen in us. was I saying? Oh yeah. In other words, God stakes his whole reputation on how well we love each other. That's a beautiful responsibility. God stakes his whole reputation on how well we love each other. So again, let your, love, let your relationships begin and end and everything in between with the love of God. We regard no man because of the flesh. We are constrained by love. And we have now a ministry and a true word of reconciliation for each other. Lastly, I just want to talk for a few minutes about you receiving the love of God. If, if you have never received the love of God, none of this really matters. All of this is because we assume that John's writing to children of God. He's writing to people who've received the love of God. If you've never received the love of God, your life is probably maybe just like religion or trying to work for some feeling of peace. And it's probably starting to feel like an uphill battle. Like I can't, I can't get that peace. Or you're trying to do different things to just please some God or the God of the Bible. And, and you know what? Recycling is great, but it doesn't make us righteous before God. Reading books, getting knowledge is great, but it is not the key to righteousness before God. If you're seeking rest and you've never found it, Jesus says to you, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me, all who have been trying really hard, and I will give you rest. True children of God prove their adoption by how well they rest. And if you don't have any rest in your relationship with God, it's simply because maybe you haven't been receiving his love. 
and his love has a name, Messiah. So I'm going to have the band come back up. And I'm going to tell a story from the Old Testament because in the New Testament, like John, we have great propositions like God is love. But in the Old Testament, we have things like, like pictures. Pictures that, that tell us about the love of God. And that's what I want to do. Okay, so in your Old Testament, 750 years before the, the Christ came, before the Messiah, there was a prophet His name was Hosea. He was a prophet of the north. He was a very well-known man of God. And one day, God said, Hosea, I want you to marry this chick named Gomer. And he's like, wait, wait, wait. Is there two gals with that name? I don't think so. Have you heard the name? I mean, no. There's this one girl, and she's, she's a little rough around the edges. God says, I want you to marry Gomer, the prostitute. And so Hosea's like, okay, I don't know where this is going, but I believe in redemption, so I'm going to do this anyways. And he marries Gomer. They have three children, so maybe that means they were together for at least three years. And then one day, after a long day of prophesying or whatever Hosea did, he comes home, and the kids are like, mom's gone. She packed up her stuff, and she took off. She said, I can't do this anymore. Falling out of love with you. And in a minute, Hosea is just realizing he's become a single dad. And it's a little shameful if you think about maybe this guy who is this famous prophet in the northern country. Somebody who has eyes of people on him. What kind of whispers is he hearing in the back of his mind? I knew you shouldn't have married that chick. I knew that's what was going to happen. So Gomer is nowhere to be found. And then in chapter 3 of Hosea, God says, Hosea, I want you to go find her. Hosea chapter 3 verse 1 says, Hosea, I want you to go and find Gomer, even though she is a prostitute and has committed adultery against you, and I want you to love her with the love of the Lord. Wait a minute. The Lord of the Old Testament doesn't love. I want you to love her with the love of the Lord? Is this this what the love of the Lord is like? So Hosea starts to go down to South Division and ask around. Have you seen my wife? Her name's Gomer. She goes by Gomi sometimes. Have you seen her? <laughs> he goes and knocks on the door at the, the old Cindy Mini up the road here. He's like, hey man, have you seen my wife? Gomer? And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't know you guys were still together. Like, I mean, it was just business, man. I, I seen her the other day. Somebody's like, I know where she is. And they, they take him down to the warehouses on the south side of town. And, and they find her on a selling block. They find Gomer in, in a part of sex trade. He's like, that's my wife. Whoever's in charge is saying things like, Look, I don't care who it is. There's a price here. 
So Hosea's like, okay, take all my silver. I even got some food with me. You could try and take that. Is this the love of God? Really? That he says, what's the price? I'll pay the price. Even though you're already mine. Even though I know you belong to me. You are already mine. I will pay the price. What's the price? Who's your God? Is he the God that says, I'll pursue you. I will go after you. I will pay whatever it costs to get you back. To, to get you back to, to come with me. The next thing Hosea does is he renews his vows to, to Gomer. And he says, no longer will you be going after other men and be a prostitute. But you shall come with me for many days. And I will do the same for you. This is the love of God. Could it be that this is the love of God for us? And the only thing we really have to do now is to identify who I am in the story. Hosea's name means salvation. Gomer's name means perfection. Jesus is my Hosea. Who is God for you? I'm the prostitute. I'm the one who seeks after other messiahs and other things. I'm the one who, who, who rejects my, my love. Jesus is the one who says, I still want you and I'll pay for you. This is the love of God. Will you receive it this morning? Stand, with, stand, stand to your feet with me. First John 4, verse 9, maybe answers a question for you. How? How is, how is he loving me? How did this love work? How did it, how did it happen? First John 4, verse 9, this is how. This is how he showed his love for us. That he sent his son so that you might live. This is how. He left where he was to come find you. To find me. So I want to pray with you this morning. Right down here. If anybody has, has never received the love of God. If anybody has just been trying to attain the love of God. Because of just works. And because of our own uh, pride. And because we want to prove ourselves to him. We love because he first loved us. And if you want to receive the love of God, let's, let's pray together. If you have received the love of God 150,000 times and you want to this morning, you want to say, Jesus is my Hosea. Jesus is my husband. And come and renew your vows. Let's pray down here for a little while.